0: Welcome to The Rights of Others, the podcast where we explore human rights abuses and efforts to seek accountability, transparency and access to remedy for victims of such abuses. We do so through a conversation with those who have devoted their lives to protecting and defending the rights of others, talking about what they're working on and how and why they chose to pursue their fight against corporate injustice. Great. Okay, so um, today we are very excited to have uh, at the Rights of Others, um, Gemma Friedman. Gemma is currently uh, Assistant International Officer at the um, trade union Unison, where she's responsible for business and human rights, as well as the union's relationship with the Asia trade unions. Before that, Gemma was a Policy Officer at the TUC, and, um, well, worked at the, as the trade union membership coordinator for the Ethical Trading Initiatives Initiative and as a corporate social responsibility manager in Oxford. So uh, it's very exciting to have Gemma, as, uh, not only because uh, she is an amazing woman and we will get to know more uh, about her, but also because she represents uh, um, the work of trade unions in a way, which we haven't had until now. And uh, we think it, it is, it is absolutely key and important uh, today in, the, the, in our um, economy, in our recovery from COVID, in our um, general reorganisation of the way we want to live and the way we want to organise um, our own battle for the rights of others to have the trade unions um, uh, on board. So Gemma, welcome. Thank to you the very of much.
1: And um, yeah, I'm honoured to be asked.
0: Fantastic. So uh, Gemma, we normally uh, start our conversations asking what are you
1: working on at the moment? Okay, so there's a kind of quite a large range of things from things at the international level, like the I do a little bit double in with the United Nations Binding Treaty for Business and Human Rights. That's the short term, uh, the short phrase of it, um, to things like Mandatory Human Rights Due Diligence, um, the UK um, design of what that legal proposal might look like. Um, we have Marilyn Crosser on here before who, who was leading on that, of course, I've been involved in that. To things like um, public procurement and global supply chains and how do we use the leverage of um, public, the enormous buying power of public um, uh, procurement to um, improve the rights of others. Um, everywhere Um, and I think trade unions have got a really really um, important role to be able to play within that so there's a few areas in which I've got involved so lately so with electronics watch um, uh, a number of different ways with electronics watch as well as um, uh, designing a way for public sector institutions that are now interested in getting this question right, designing a way for our own members and reps to work with those institutions, and when it comes to local government, to the elected councillors, to work out how to do that correctly. Because there's a lot of stuff out there, there's a lot of corporate social responsibility initiatives out there, and the how is often failing. So um, if we can't do that as trade unions and help to lead on that as trade unions, then who can do that? So I'm really interested in doing bipartite or tripartite work around that area. And so doing a number of things in there. um, To also then at the bottom of the supply chain, um, wanting to basically, unless we're helping to organize workers, unless this leads to workers being able to organize themselves, at the bottom of these supply chains and to be able to have a say in how their own working lives are run and um, et cetera, then um, what are we doing this for? So I'm also doing some work to link up some UK um, supply chains, uh, sorry, UK public institutions buying. um, So it's the electronics, or if it was for example, PPE, to workers in those supply chains, Um, yeah. So that's a bit of what I'm doing right now. Yeah, well, that's there's, there's a lot of very interesting um,
0: issues uh, and that we can't um, unfold here but I think uh, one interesting uh, point of what you said is this um, workers organizing themselves so the, the workers boys I think uh, one of the elements I, that might be missing a little bit from the business and human rights community which is very much dominated um, by um, academics uh, lawyers um, civil society uh, advocates is this uh, working for the workers without maybe having um the you know that voice um so much into whilst it's central the workers' interest is central it might not, the worker itself might not be central in some of our work which uh, well, do do you perceive this um, kind of i don't want to say patronizing obviously but this kind of like um uh, way of working that may actually exclude the person you
1: want to <laughs> benefit yeah, ab- with your work absolutely so if we think about first of all if we go back to academia and when I was in the in the 1990s at SOAS I didn't hear about you know worker self-organization in in the degree that I did and I should have in that degree if I think back when I returned to SOAS and I listened And this is not just not unique to SOAS. And I did a master's, you know, in 2005, there was one lecture on the informal economy and organizing of informal economy workers. It happened to be in Tanzania in the transport, um, in the the bus drivers. And I remember it so clearly because I was at the TUC at the time and um, going on my own journey of exploration into this. And I remember being so excited and I put my hand up and I asked, So I guess you then doing your your PhD research, you then were talking to the Transport Workers Union then, weren't you, in Tanzania? And he wasn't. So this is, then you see this often repeated in a lot of spaces. What in the corporate social responsibility industry, because it is an industry, there often is a lot of cherry picking that goes on. People like to focus on forced labor or they'll focus on issues around um, they might do some stuff around gender or or whatever, but there's a lot of cherry picking. The thing that really needs to be worked on, in, in my opinion, is the enabling human rights. What are the enabling human rights? And the right to freedom of to freedom of association, so to freely associate with other people, so that you can talk and share ideas and all of the rest. And then to be able to collectively bargain with those people who share the same interests as you are the fundamental enabling rights. That then once those are in place within within a workplace, um, if you have a collective bargaining agreement, you start to address all of that other long list of corporate wrongs or public sector wrongs, whatever workplace that you're talking about. Um, And and you can then start to yeah. So then you're not just cherry picking, and this is this becomes what's the most important thing for those workers. And yeah, you you they get to articulate it, and they get to lead up lead on it.
2: Gemma, I um I wanted to come in on your the cherry picking point. Um, I um I spent quite a few years working at Amnesty International in the Secretariat, and. One of the research, actually two of the research investigated pieces we did involved, um, as you're saying, in a human rights framing, uh, you know, um, the, right to, the right to work, the right to work, the right to health, you know, the right to work in sort of unhazardous conditions. And, and also we did pick up, you know, within the palm oil work, instances of forced labor as defined under the ILO uh, as well as, you know, child labor concerns, as you mentioned, your um, work with uh, Electronics Watch is specifically in the DRC around, around cobalt. Um, I mean, a question I have is that um, it was actually really interesting, particularly the palm oil work, because we actually did have, uh, at least for me, the first time being involved in a discussion with trade union representatives, um, You know, both, I would say at the country level, in Indonesia, as well as at the international level, and and two things we tried to to do was to it was to one I mean discuss the findings of our research, uh, but also to get a better understanding as to how I guess the international movements could um, so work or better support the more localized trade unions, you know, the smaller trade unions, the less sophisticated ones, you know, and if there was an entry point to basically. I don't want to, you know, coming from a human rights background, I say lobby, but if there's a way to advocate, you know, for, for their rights and to put that more center stage. Uh, I'm really curious whether or not in your work and in your experience, you've seen that happen. You've actually seen uh, the mobilization of trade union workers. So it's not directly their rights, but it's the rights of other um, workers further down the supply chain. Um, and then a second question, which I'm because you mentioned gender, which I found interesting. We uh, when we worked with uh, the local trade unions, uh, you know, there were no women that were members of the trade union. And one of the key findings we made in our report in our research, which is called the Great uh, Pomelo Scandal, was actually the systemic abuse, particularly of women, women workers, you know, from many levels. Like they were, they did not tend to have permanent contracts, for example. You know, they were the ones doing the spraying, therefore facing the highest exposure to pesticides. I mean, what, what is your reflection on that? That sometimes the trade unions, they, they, they yeah, they, they cherry pick, but they totally are not also looking out for the human rights of of. A large contingent of workers, like who, who defines whose rights take precedence, you know, and which should uh, receive the majority of focus? So
1: um, I was expecting this kind of question, and it's such an important question. The thing is, you've got to you, you've got to kind of strip it back, first of all, to what trade unions are. They're membership led organizations. They should be independent and they should be democratic um and a trade union is only ever as uh rich you could say as its members so if you're talking about inherently incredibly poor workers those trade unions can find it incredibly difficult to become financially sustainable yet they are the the leadership has come from The workers has come from the 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 shop floor, as we call it. They've come from the field, and so they don't have those degrees, and to be able to go out and get funding, or they don't. There's a whole load of don't haves that others do have that they don't have. So I think we've got to start from from there. They are also the little resources that they do have um, are being paid by workers who don't have great lives. Sometimes they've got better lives and sometimes they don't. We could debate that as well. But in general, they are there to represent the people who are paying money into that union to be members. Now, many, many unions actually have different ways of dealing with workers that can't afford to be their members. Or even many, many workers are even excluded by law from even becoming, many migrant workers from even becoming trade union members, so um there it, it's so complex as to why trade unions are not representing particular groups of workers um, and and then you know but there is work that goes on in the international trade union movement, so for example, quotas are set uh, for for the number of for the number of women that have to be in the leadership of trade unions, et cetera um, so. Yeah, I could say more about the mobilization of workers down the supply chain, but over the years, I've met some amazing trade unionists who have done some incredible things. Like I have a friend in um, in Uganda who works for the Transport Workers Union, and they have managed to organize the motorcycle drivers in Uganda doing some really, really revolutionary organizing. Hundreds of thousands of them, and they've managed to get money Uh, for the membership subscription that makes that type of work sustainable. Because if you don't get the subscriptions coming in, how are you going to be able to do anything for anybody? And the other thing I would say is, um, or maybe I could get onto it a bit later, but, you know, I was recently in Malaysia um, just before lockdown. And we brought together a very, um, one of Malaysia's oldest labor rights NGOs, and we brought together some trade unions. And they'd all known each other and done joint statements for years and years together. Um, But they've never actually done any real strategic work together. And I did a particular session in the workplace, uh, in the workshop for them, which helped them to understand between them what their individual strengths and weaknesses were and really just air some of that stuff. And on both sides, but especially on the NGO side, there was a real moment where it was like, wow, we didn't even realize just how many barriers there are placed deliberately in front of you as trade unions for organizing workers, let alone organizing Malaysian workers, organizing um, migrant workers. So, that's, so, so that's, that's a lot on that. But in terms of women, one thing to say um, is that we are the biggest, for all our faults, and of course, every movement has its faults, but we are the biggest feminist movement in the world. You won't find another movement where I think it's something like, and I'll probably get it wrong, 60 million women are members of trade unions. so and they pay money to be members of trade unions and and that's worldwide. so um, and we have very very um like like I say, you know there, there are quotas, but you know the trade unions in country are also only going to be a reflection of their of the cultures and the norms in those countries. So, yeah, there, there is a lot of work that has to be done, but it is possible and we've seen it happen.
0: Interesting. Um, actually, you know, when you were uh, telling your story about um, Malaysia, a uh, it- it kind of gave me much more of an idea of what um, international solidarity and the, the fa- you know, international, the, the federations of uh, trade unions and the, inter- the stronger trade unions actually coming uh, to uh, uh, help their, their sisters trade unions actually uh, much more than I was uh, I was aware and uh, I guess I don't know I'm, I'm Spanish so I uh, my uh, background in having grown up in the UK uh, having grown up in a different background is um, I think in the UK your own history has made the word trade union a very complex one in terms of uh, political um and and social uh, acceptance so um it, it has a, a very cultural connotation as well i think of uh, whether the power or lack of power etc but um so so that's that's kind of, that's very interesting one important uh, question that i wanted to ask you is this uh, uh w- I think a very brave work that you do, brave in terms of uh, you know how much energy probably takes, not not uh, putting you at risk, but is to talk to public buyers <laughs> about why is it important that someone in Malaysia has freedom of association and access to collective bargaining. How does that relate to the work that someone in a local council does? When purchasing um, uh, the printers that they need to uh, print the, the, the council's documents, so how do you do this? How do you how do you manage to bring to these people whose everyday job is not? Anything to do with human rights. Everyday job is to do with fulfilling the local service, or, or or, uh, in this particular case, buying stuff. How do you tell them? You know, the Freedom of Association for Workers in Malaysia is also your job.
1: So that's a really great question. I think probably the first thing I'd want to say is having done a little bit of time working with the private sector buyers, I'd say that actually public sector buyers are really refreshing. (laughs) I've really, really enjoyed my time so far um, interacting with them. And actually, I think that's partly because the the for-profit motive has been taken out. Um, Okay, so those, well, for starters, I don't know the numbers because we don't actually collect exactly how many of our members are procurers, but our members, we've got thousands of members, maybe tens of thousands, because we've got 1.3 million members in the UK, 1 million of which are women. Um, but our, our own membership are procurers, but also our own members are telling us they don't want to be saving the life of, you know, they, they wouldn't want to be saving the life of somebody who has COVID-19 right now, knowing that the ventilator that they're using has got component parts that have been made by lives ruined and blighted by all kinds of dreadful um, exploitative practices. Um, so that's kind of one one area. So this is our members, the finance officers, et cetera, the procurers, they are our members. The other area is that when you think about local government, we, we, um, we're focusing at the moment, I mean, on Labour councils, you know, we at Unison is affiliated to the Labour Party. So the reason I wanted to start first, start, and we're still at the beginning of this journey with local government rather than the NHS, etc., is because we can bring in a tripartite process. So we can bring the employer in, which is the officials uh, in the council. We can bring the councillors in and our reps, and we can help to build the capacity of the three to develop both the knowledge, the understanding, and skills to be able to 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 to, to do. Um, to do things differently than has been done before. But one other element that I can bring in, and I, um, and it's really important that I bring in, is the rights of those procurers. So we've been living in a time of austerity for so many years, and they've had pay freezes. Well, that just got released recently, you know, last year or so, but um, they, they've experienced that. They've seen their own wages reduce, but also they've seen the headcount in their their, um, offices reduce, yet they're still being asked to do the same job. In fact, they're being asked to do more now, including being more ethical about how they do their purchasing. So one of the things that I want to do with the work that I'm doing is to put that on the table. That's a bargaining, like that's a bargaining issue for us. How do you recognize and incentivize um, public procurers to get involved in this? They, They should be recognized, they should be rewarded for it. If there's no money, how else can they be so this is a conversation that that i think is important um to be had so we can look at this from like all i hope from all angles and see that there is a, and also the other point is, is in the public sector of course unlike the private sector they're used to being they're, they're used to trade unions unions in general are not a dirty word for them unions are some they've seen unions being able to fight for their rights so we then have to bring it back down to the uk level and explain how did this country even develop in the first place apart from colonialism and slavery and all of that but it was also trade unionists who who first fought for all of those rights and the amazing lives that they they get to lead comparatively to people in the global south or in other countries which which haven't got the same rights as us yeah very
0: interesting I think that that element of it it just doesn't it can't be an individual decision of uh, or an individual drive of one very uh, a person that has a, a, a really uh, big conscience of these issues, taking decisions while purchasing or while developing policies at local level, etc. It has to be an institutional response. It has to be driven from those who have the capacity to uh, design the policies, but also allocate the budgets, etc. So I think that that that. Work that you're doing actually at transmitting that um, uh, important uh, institutional change and and, and organizational uh, mind uh, change is is very is key so I wanted to ask you uh, Gemma how did you get to work for the rights of others how, how did you get here what made you um, decide that you want to devote your everyday
1: life? to working for the rights of others? So I've really looked forward to this question because I've, I've listened to all of the podcasts so far, and I've been in conversation with you all in my head up till this point, point. and there's quite a lot of similarities that I see actually. So I, I was lucky to be up a, a couple of times until the age of seven, an expat kid. And the one that I remember, the first time was in um, Iran, but I don't remember that. The second time was in Singapore. Um, this is like in the, the late 70s. And have it, I've got a very political dad. So I was leading an expat life, but I was, I was educated at the same time by my dad in politics or in the haves and the have nots and things like that. So I then come back to the UK and I get put straight into a state school where I'm very aware of my privilege from from, from day one. And it was a real education for me, actually, being in my primary school and being in a state school, because I spoke even more partially than I do now at that time. Um, and then I would say, you know, I got I got dragged around the streets canvassing for the Labour Party and stuff like that. So it, I quite liked it. So it kind of was brought, I was brought up with it. Um, but then um, I had a boyfriend challenge me. Uh, and he was reading Malcolm X at the time. And he was Ethiopian. and A public school boy, but he was exploring his own stuff. And he really challenged me and my kind of, at the time, probably quite wishy-washy views. And I, I really had to look at myself at that point. It, it it led me into thinking about um, where my privilege came from, hmm. why I had a middle class background. Um, you know, I looked loads into racism. That led me down the path to slavery. That led me down the path to colonialism. And it's only in the last couple of, well, the last couple of months that I realised actually I, I've been well, I've been talk, I knew I was being talking about my privilege for all my kind of adult life. But actually I've also been talking about my white privilege for all of my adult life. It's just my whole, being in London, you know, we're such a beautiful melting pot. It, it, you know, my life doesn't look like like a white life in the sense of like everyone I interact with and who I'm with and that, and, and the richness that that's all brought me. So anyway, so that led me to get to SOAS and I finally felt like I was at home. And, and I loved my years there. And I then ended up, I worked in parliament for a little bit. Oh, I actually, going back more, in, I became a card, a card holder of the anti-apartheid movement at the age of 15. I still have that. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, volunteering at the age of 18 in the anti-apartheid movement's Camden offices in my summer holidays. So I was kind of, it, it, it was deep inside me. You have the, uh, you have the photo of the placard. I have I, I have the little card, my royal membership <laughs> card. Still, oh, I proudly keep it. You know, <laughs> and then and then yeah, and I did and I did volunteering for Action for Southern Africa once they transitioned from anti-apartheid movement, and then after Soas, um, I went into Parliament for a bit. Let's skip that. But then I went to work. I fell into working for the Labour Party. It wasn't what I wanted to be doing. I have to be honest. My dad said though. I I was like a foot soldier. I I became a trainee organizer. He said, "You you know you're going to give up your life. You're not going to have a life, but you're going to pick up all the skills you need." Actually, if I'd had the chance to become a trade a trainee trade union organizer, actually, I'd probably nowadays knowing what I know about trade about being a trade a trade union organizer, I'd have probably chosen that. But I don't regret my Labour Party time. But I chucked that in because it wasn't for me and. After a few years, I did I did well and I that that was all great and, and I helped to win elections in 2001, but it wasn't for me. I'm an internationalist. That's where I want to be. And then um, I was either going to go abroad and, and do some volunteering because I felt like I needed to start somewhere or I was going to stay here. And actually the job at the, T, at the TUC came up in 2003 and I stayed here and actually I used the word home again. Finally, I was home, and the reason I was home was because we are led by our members. And when I work with trade unionists in other countries, I am not led by what we think should be happening, but by what they think should be happening. And as a white, middle-class woman, that do-no-harm concept is at the core of who and what I am. And so, yeah, I was at the TUC for years and I did loads of stuff. I was, I represented, I kind of um, built our relationship with DFID, our funding relationship with DFID. We were on apprenticeship with DFID. Uh, you, you wouldn't, you'd think under a Labour government, maybe we'd get loads of money, but we didn't. We had to prove ourselves. And then finally, we got to the same status as Oxfam, save the children in terms of funding relationship. The Tories get in and they take our money away straight away, <laughs> despite just despite good evaluations and things. So so then, yeah, then, then I, I kind of, just carried on. I couldn't bring myself to work for an NGO. I'm sorry. I just, I, I love, um, when we're good, when, when we're, when we're great, we make really amazing things happen. And so that's why, and I see myself as a tiny cog in that wheel. And I see myself, if I can just, if I can have multiplier effects by by supporting and doing things with others, then for me, that has to be enough because, um, That's all, that's all any of us are. We're we're all cogs in the wheel. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. And then I just started to move towards the opportunity came up to work with the ethical trading initiative, moved into that. And then the opportunity to do a little bit of work with Oxfam internally within their own corporate, within their own operations, that Mm -hmm. opportunity came up and you can bet that I pushed Freedom Association and Collective Bargaining and, and all of that agenda very hard. They will laugh if any of them listen to it. Um, and, then, and then I went back to TC for a bit and then now finally I've got a business and human rights brief at Unison. And, you know, Unison such such an internationalist union and um, that's a really brilliant thing because during these times that are so difficult for workers at home, they are keeping open their international work and they're not kind of becoming navel-gazing or protectionist, which you could understand that they might do, when our members are under so much threat, but no, they've got a really great, proud international history. And so I I, I get to do some really amazing things. That,
0: that's, that's great. You, you seem really happy where you are at the moment. So uh, one of the um, uh, things that popped out what I was listening to you is this idea of privilege, no? which is something that we've uh, discussed and we've discussed in previous uh, podcasts and um, uh, in our previous episode, for example, with Amol Mera, we talked very much about um, to having the, you know, the the great privilege of being able, for example, to to create spaces where we could invite others to. In the case of a mall, it was to actually develop their work um, through funding. In our case, uh, Sima, Rasa and I to to give a voice by giving a little um, uh, piece of microphone. But um, it, the way you say privilege, it sounds very much uh, this sense of guilt as if it was your own making that you, you yourself um, realized that you had been something doing something wrong. So to what extent as well, um, you know, uh, uh, why British uh, people who, who have a really strong social conscience and have been working for uh, human rights and, and civil rights for so long actually don't have this sense of like original guilt as well. And we're seeing it much more. How useful is this? this uh, definitely, the awareness is very useful, especially now in um, uh, in the context of Black Life Matters. The, having the awareness of privilege is essential, but to what extent carrying this original guilt as well does in any way reflect in our work, or sh- we should actually uh, uh, carry it with us?
1: Yeah, and I remember hearing you talk about this in in the previous podcast too, and and I really. Um empathize and sympathize with that definitely I think you know no I didn't create it but I benefit from it and and all of the little ways that I've benefited from not being discriminated against because of my color and because of my you know my the the, the family that my dad was able to you know the, the life my dad was able to build for us um one of the things that happened to me when I was growing up was um, I left my second, my first secondary school, which was just really going downhill. So we're talking about the the early 80s under Thatcher. And after a bullying incident, because I've always spoken out, I, I, um, my mum had been pushing me to go to a private school um, that was literally on our road, our very small road. And I was like, no way, there's no way I'm doing that. There's no way I'm doing that. In the end, I was like, okay, I'll try out for the exam. But if I don't, if, if I don't get in, I'm not doing this. And um, so I got in, but I had to go down a year and repeat the year. And I got in a scholarship and stuff because, yeah. But what I s- promised myself at that, that moment in time was, because my dad didn't even know that we would, I was doing this. So we had to tell him quietly, like in a neutral space, um, that I would for the rest of my life, I would work towards like, helping to equal things out somehow, because it wasn't fair that I was the one that got to move and that got to leave my friends, many of whom were not white. Like, I wouldn't like to say behind because that's not right, but in a way it kind of is, if you think about the privilege you get from a private school. And so that was also, so that's also fed into it. Um, I feel really comfortable now in my own skin. I feel like if you've looked at yourself, if you've questioned yourself, if you've debated with yourself and with your friends, then you kind of, you know, we can't just carry this guilt forever. I mean, I always feel like I should be doing more, but I think that that's just a normal thing if you've got a conscience.
0: I think it's very interesting in my own personal sphere. I was having a um, conversation with my partner, who's a, my husband. He's a, a white uh, Western uh, male. And um, I was saying, we were saying about, you know, seven of you for three of. All the rest of us, you know, there's like seven wild uh, Western males for every other three of uh, you know the non-white females, non uh, uh, um, you know the LGBT etc. So um, I was telling him, well, maybe if this had been equal all along, you wouldn't be one of those seven if if it was you know it was an equal representation it's just you got there not because you don't deserve it but because you did have the space so if we had a place at the table for everybody maybe that's the way it is there are other people that are better than us and and they do deserve the the place at the table it doesn't mean that we're not that we're not um uh, you know capable of doing very good work is that all the people have never been able to access the table
2: Gemma, it's an interesting conversation, I have to say. Um, I, I won't come in on the privilege point because I, I have um, I have a different perspective on privilege, I think. I think that's the topic of another podcast, perhaps. Um, you know, we should have this sort of intersectional nature of, of privilege uh, itself. It can be broken down into so many ways. Um, my question is, um, and I, I know what your, what your answer is, my question is, would you consider yourself a human rights activist? And uh, I'm going to ask a follow-up question depending on if I'm correct as to what your answer is.
1: Oh, okay. Um, it, it's weird. It's a little bit of a yes and a little bit of a no. I, I think it's a if it, it, the no is because um, I'm a trade union bureaucrat. I'm an officer that gets to sit in the office. It's our members who are out there in the workplace who are putting their jobs on the line for advocating for the rights of others who are the activists. Yes when the, mar- when the marches and demonstrations happen I put on a tabab and I'm there helping to steward the marches and all the rest and yes I'm working with civil society actors a diverse range <sighs> but uh, so in a way yes and but in a way no because I'm one of the ones that's like so protected.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. I wasn't expecting a (laughs) (laughs) 50-50 response. But um, yeah, I think so that that leads to this idea that, um, you know, where, you know, for Olga, you know, it's very important for her, for students that are listening to this podcast, you know, who express an interest in joining, you know, Amnesty or another Human Rights Watch or the UN that, you know, who want to have a career in human rights, you know, that, you know, this, this idea of sort of being professionalized, like having a professional career in human rights. But then, you know, arguably, I mean, my, my added objective of, of this podcast is, is to go beyond the students. It's to, of course, to every person who may possibly listen to this to, to feel like, yeah, you know, I'm a human rights activist. So, so, you know, my goal is, is people who finish listening to this actually all label themselves human rights activists and that can be obviously not just a vocation it's it's who you are as an individual and and you had said that you at 15 had the anti-apartheid sign like that is what human rights activists at core does um uh but your, your response makes sense so Olga you know her and I have had discussions and she also rejected not rejected that's too harsh but uh, had a similar response in many ways to not wanting to um, I think it's because she held as I understand all human rights activists in higher esteem Than than the role that she's carrying out as a professor, which I said that was just ridiculous, you know Because I hold her in high esteem with the that She's doing and then we go
0: back to the whole original guilt. It's like I have the original
2: guilt of being sitting in an office <laughs> Yeah. Um. So Maybe maybe I'm going to sort of build on on your response because you know the sense I get is human rights is core to you as a person. Perhaps professionally, um, you don't align completely because it's, you're seeing it more as a trade, uh, a trade activist, and maybe it's defined. I'm not sure, but slightly differently, or an organizer. Um, I, a question I have is I had a conversation once with. Um, also, you know, a lady who is quite high up and representing trade unions, and and I, we were coming at an interesting conversation where she was, she had suggested to me, and I, I did agree, but I would never have suggested it myself. You know, she said that actually, SEMA trade unions often are not in favor of human rights. There will be things that come up that actually are against, you know, sort of what human rights organizations or do not align and or could be against, you know, what human rights activists, if you want to say organizations of a more institutional view, you know, would take. So my question to you is, is, I, is have you been in a situation like that? And, and which way have you, have you sided?
1: So, I know I really like this question um, because this is one of the reasons why um, I really like working within the trade union movement as well, because, because of those contradictions, because being a trade unionist Actually, in the end, when you get around the bargaining table, it is all about compromise. And, you know, so Unison, for example, could have uh, particular policies that are made by the members that are, go counter to another UK union's policies because they've got members that work in that industry. So we can think about the polluting industries, we could think about the nuclear industries, working people in nuclear industries or in the military. Uh, sorry, or making weapons, they still deserve to be um, recognized as workers and to have access to uh, their rights at work. Um, So we are full of contradictions because we're dealing with the real world and the real world (laughs) is incredibly contradictory. I think... um, so I personally haven't had to come across that um, myself, but I'm very alive to it. I'm very alive also to the fact that I'm working now along some sectors. So we're public sector, public services, but um, we, But I'm working now on, with people, trade unionists who work in the electronics industry. And um, that is not, um, I can't represent them, And I don't have the rights to represent them because that's not in our membership. So I have to be guided by others. So, yeah, I think this is the other thing, you know, trade unions can be quite in some ways, they can be quite conservative as well, because once you win power, it's so hard to win power in the first place, and it's so easy to lose it. And you want to maintain. So when I talk about power, I mean, equalizing power. You you want it in the workplace you you need to maintain that, or you don't want your members' jobs to be lost due to climate change because those industries are going to disappear. We look at the social destruction that's happened in the north of England when the coal mines, um, when coal mining stopped, etc., and and the destitution of those people and the social consequences therein. After, there's even led you can say to Brexit and to um, and to the Tories having such an enormous majority right now, this is all incredibly interlinked. So the things that we do call for are things like just transitions. So we're calling for a just transition for climate change workers. So those who are working in polluting factories or industries, for example, are trained um, to be able to work in those that are not um, and that they are given opportunities to get jobs in, you know, that, that there's investment in those areas as one area closes down another area. Um, of of uh, that, that isn't so polluting needs to open up in those areas. So, yeah, it is really complex, but I think because we are in a world that has been grabbed by corporate lobbyists so much, it can make trade unions uh, a bit more protectionist um, because you're fighting to maintain what you've already won. And that's a really hard thing. And not to lose it because... There's a lot of forces that want, there's a whole industry created and it started in the US, which is union busting. Corporations pay specialists to come in and stop trade unions from being able to do a successful ballot that they have spent years building up and raising awareness with workers so that they can get recognized in a particular workplace through a democratic ballot. And then once they get that you know the workers get sent videos about how bad the trade unions are um and and that their profit will be reduced because they want they're so unrealistic in their demands they'll send around lies but also workers will get threatened um maybe quietly um, and definitely workers get pulled in one at a time into a meeting with the manager not as a collective, because that's so how you divide and rule. And so they're scared off from, from joining. So there's so many barriers, um, but yes, it can make us contradictory too. There's, sorry, so many barriers to progression and that can end up making us a bit contradictory. And, you know, and, and also you don't have to be, yeah. labor, you don't have to be a labor rights activist to be a member of a union. Actually, you're a member of a union because you want your job to be protected. We've got Brexit members. We've got Tories. We may well have non-active members of the far right who are members because they want their jobs protected too, just like anybody else. So we are a reflection of of that.
2: Yeah, I think that's that's quite interesting. Um, Thanks for explaining that. Um, uh, So to... What what advice would you give to a student who wants to follow in your footsteps?
1: So right now, and I'm working actually with a graduate um, who's doing some work for us on the ethical procurement stuff. I think the point for me right now, for anyone who doesn't have work experience, let's say, is actually it doesn't matter where you're working right now, get a job and get some skills and preferably get some skills that are going to be transferable um, across places. I think you know, the point is, is you don't have to go into, into working, um, within, um, the human rights field to make a difference. In 2005, I worked with Prospect Union when I was at the TUC and we were developing some work around corporate responsibility. And we, we termed it because it was also being funded through work, through through a project that I had with DFID. We funded it, we called it bargaining for international development. And that is literally, how did we support, how, how could Prospect support its members to put, for, and, and its members work in all kinds of things, in all kinds of areas, there are scientists there, they've got nuclear people, they've got people who work on procurement, like a really big range of, they've got public, the civil servants, how um, they've got the Met, you know, uh, the, um, uh, that, that does all the weather forecasting, weather forecasting and everything. Um, and how do we empower those people to make a difference in their own workplaces? So, actually, I think the important thing is you've got to know what you, you believe in and what your values are. And you've got to be prepared not to compromise on those values. You definitely need to join a trade union. Not just it, it, in a way, I say to people, you may never need that union ever in your life. But what your money is doing is contributing towards assisting other people who are having a really hard time. And the great levelers all around the world um, have been trade unions that have helped to progress um, societies. So, you know, when you do get a job, join a trade union. (laughs) But also get active because there's tons of training that is available, lifelong learning, as well as all kinds of skills. You can become a representative. Um, At Unison, we've got branch international relations officers who are enabled to represent their branch in their workplace on international issues. But we've also got black members groups. We've got, you know, we've got uh, women's um, equality groups, etc. It's a really diverse and and beautiful place out there. And if you don't like what you see in your union, get involved and change it because it's only as good as its, its members.
2: Yeah, I think that last point is incredibly important. Um, I, I have been member of, of a union, and um, I, I think that's yet another podcast to <laughs> my own reflections on on you know the right to organize is is incredibly important. The freedom you know the freedom to organize, and, and I, 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 yeah, it's, it's essential. I, I think for me, I it is almost my own personal experiences. I wish that actually the the trade union would prioritize. The rights of those who are most affected, to be honest, and sometimes not the majority of the members, but it's the most vulnerable of the membership. And um, but yeah, so that's my own personal reflection: um, is how you balance the two. You know, you I, I believe in the right, I protect it, but how do you how do you improve it? I suppose that um, that those who have that, that that right to organize actually then prioritize the rights of of those who are in fact most vulnerable. Um, Maybe that segues a bit into my next question. And um, I was impressed when you said you listened to our other podcasts, because I'm not even sure I've listened to all of them, and I'm on, on most of them. Um, you know, since, of course, the racial injustice has been incredibly exposed in, in well, in the US, but uh, I think, uh, you know, more recently, we know with Black Lives Matter and Black Lives in the UK, particularly, I'm, I'm thinking of um, at like at the moment. Uh, you know, we we, as Olga had said, you know, we were talking about how we can use our platform, right, to to ensure better sort of not, you know, better we're looking at the issues a bit differently. You know, we're confronting our own biases, you know, whether or not they're um yeah, whether or not they are in fact not gender aligned, but also racially, you know, aligned. Um I'm wondering, you know, uh what what can what can people who are a member, you know, you you, you referred to trade members uh, seeking to change the the trade union or the group they're a part of. And w- what can they do? What advice would you give sort of, uh, you know, someone who is a member of a trade union who wants to actually uh, assist, like look at meaningful ways to systemically address racism, you know, in the workplace?
1: Oh, well, that's an area I've never led on. So, you know, I, I don't feel, um, uh, necessarily equipped to fully like to in a representative way to talk about that but um yeah we do have across the trade union movement we've got what we call self-organized groups so these are um democratic uh committees which get to make decisions about the direction in which the union should go in and those go down into the very local level um, and then the local level makes policy that then, you know, or puts forward motions that then goes up into their regions or into their into the national policy making process. Um, and so I would say, you know, uh, go go along to your union, like if you've got a union rep and you know who they are talk to them find out what is and isn't going on in the workplace um with the massive demands on workers right now actually there aren't enough trade union activists so find out where the gaps are find out what is happening um attend a few meetings and kind of get your head around it but also look at what the opportunities are like i said there's a very large a lot of money is put into training and education courses and as members and particularly if you get elected by your branch to become a representative, a trading union representative, you get access, free access, to be trained in all kinds of areas. So just kind of feel, feel around and decide to go on a journey. And if you don't like what you see, um, you do have a chance democratically to get involved and to change it. And and um, it might take a little bit of time, but you know if you're but or, or you could turn up and there could be a vacancy immediately and they would be grateful to have somebody who's able to give some time to filling in that vacancy. So and over time, you get to know how the union works um, and um, what is likely to get traction and what isn't. But you've got to be in, the, in it to start it.
0: Yeah, that that's a very important point, and Gemma I think we probably don't get don't get um involved in the in our own unions enough and I have to say that uh, in the recent strike that we did at the universities and colleges um led by u c u the university and colleges union, it was amazing it was i had never uh, you know i paid my quota et etc and received my emails um, and do the ballots but never felt that a sense of closeness and solidarity with my university colleagues as much as I did in those pickets. And when those pickets finished because of COVID, we still we had our last day of, um, of uh, uh, strike was actually online. We did a virtual strike over Twitter and everything. And we're still in touch. We still have the the strike um, at WhatsApp. And during the lockdown, it has been amazing this level of support um, that we had from this kind of sense of being united through something and with yeah. certain common values, even as, as, you, as you say, you know, there are common interests, even yeah. if we might be very different in some other ways.
1: So, this is another point about why I love the trade union movement so much, is because it does unite people mm-hmm. in common in common understanding, common needs. So when, and we just get ignored so much deliberately often by governments when it comes to things like conflict resolution. So, you know, in Sierra Leone, for example, after the incredibly devastating um, war, civil war there, they, the the, the Sierra Leone Labour Congress was um, really important and was actually brought in in this instance in helping to heal the divide um because actually we cross racial religious gender um lgbt plus we cross all divides because what is it that every single human being wants they want the ability for their job to provide them with the basic minimum needs that they that they want in life and rights at work and you know a statistic i haven't quoted any statistics but i did but i did produce i did a uh, Print out the International Trade Union Confederation's 2020 Global Rights Index on violations of workers. And there's a, and, and, and you see, because trade unionists also, once they get active, they take, and especially in, in the more vulnerable or the less privileged workers, it's the first time in their lives, often, especially for women, that they have the chance to have any chance of knowing what power looks like. And they take that, they take that experience, they take the training they receive and they put it into their communities too. They put it into their families. They get involved in politics and things like that. So is it any surprise because of the change-making possibilities of the trade union movement that in 2020, 74% of countries excluded workers from the right to establish or join a trade union? Mm -hmm. Right? Or is it any surprise that um, 80% of countries um, have violated the right to collective bargaining or that 85% of countries have violated the right to strike. Like we are under a massive, massive closing of political space right now. The the powers that be do not want, and they deliberately put in many barriers in the way of people getting together and changing what their lives look like collectively in solidarity. That word solidarity, apart from people like us, most young people don't even know what solidarity means. It's true. That's the 80s. That's the 90s. That shows Mm. our age. That shows the professions Mm. that we work in. I've seen the
0: revive of of the word solidarity so much now and um, through the lockdown, yeah.
1: Yes, one of the most important words, that like in the vocabulary. Yet it's been written out deliberately by very many kind of powerful people, and indeed mm. counter narratives put to turn mm. people away from you know democratic, independent organizations like trade unions.
0: Yeah, yeah. When you say that that that's um, it, the work in the trade union, sometimes is the is the first time people feel powerful empowered that's sadly how I felt during this um, during this strike so a big shout out to my colleagues at the UCU Uh, so Gemma to finish uh, I would like to ask you what's next in the agenda so what's next in the agenda for you but also what's next I think you know we are at a massive crossroads now with the recovery from uh, the I can, can we say recovery i don't think we can say recovery from covid but you know from the uh, covid and the lockdown they, they have um actually made um inequality poverty uh lack of uh, rights and, and labor rights so visible they were there but they've been thrown in our faces and in the faces of 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 our governments so they cannot be ignored anymore because we you know are suffering and 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 some some people dying out of this so um it's not we don't have to rebuild something because rebuilding would mean building it sadly the same it was we have to re we have to reconstruct remodel um, Organize. So, what, what's next then in the agenda, in the business and human rights agenda, in the labor rights agenda, um, and, and what do you want to see and us, all of us, putting our efforts on?
1: So, oh God, that's such a big question, isn't it? Um, I wouldn't say yet that we are at a point where we're at the tipping point yet. Yeah, I think things maybe are going to have to get worse and they are gonna get worse before we manage to get to that point, especially in the UK anyway, when we've got so many years left, probably of this, of this government. Um, so I think the mandatory human rights due diligence, um, movement or, or momentum that's picked up so much is a really important one. It's not the be all and end all. Um, the oppos and the binding treaty the opposition from the employers is fierce right now they are doing everything that they possibly can to prevent you know progressive regulation of corporations and you know I mean many governments actually don't want um uh their own state cross-border activities to be regulated either but you know there's a big lobby against this so i think that's that's going to be one route that we need to go down um and i mean for me you know i mean there's like a big long list and i just can't go into it or we don't have time but there's a massive list around creating fairer global tax systems around debt relief, around ending privatization, because why have you got a profit motive in the public, the essential public sector sector services precisely? Why would you be trying to cut out profit instead of delivering the best type of, of services that you can? Um, and we've seen how that has created the situation that we've got right now with COVID. We see under-resourced and understaffed Um, hospitals everywhere and many of them privatized I mean in India for example where COVID is so bad people are having to pay thousands to get into a hospital because of the privatization I read that an Indian businessman had put over his office space for 85 beds or something like that and it would be free and it would be given to the vulnerable we're talking about a country with how many point like, what is it now? 1.3 million people, the vast majority. I mean, it's just too big. So in my own little tiny world where I'm a cog in the wheel, Olga, you and I are about to start working on a piece of work, which is going to be looking at how do we, how should the public sector with its enormous buying power over 260 billion, uh, sorry. uh, Yeah. Billion pounds a year of buying power. How should it be regulated? Um, in the same way that corporates might be how should it be held lia- liable for what goes on in its operations and its supply chains In the same way that corporates might be and very much differently because it's it's not there in the same way it doesn't exist for the same reasons as, as a corporation should do um what what might that look like so we're, we're going to be and, and we want to uh, collectively do that work and and start asking those questions and i'm bringing in the international trade union movement to help to answer some of those questions um because if this work hasn't been done yet so that's really ex- i'm really excited about that and then we've got to advocate for it and we've got to get it out there because the, our taxpayers money you know the nurses the street cleaners um and the cleaners the security guards who are all paying tax Their money shouldn't be spent on perpetuating their own exploitation in this country or in any supply chains. Their money should be spent for the public and global good. And so I guess that's what we are going to be doing um, together. And we're going to be testing out how do we use what we've got to create organizing space in... Countries where workers are finding it incredibly difficult to organize in some of the most powerful industries in the world. It sounds so big and it's so ambitious, but we've got to try, right? Um, We've got to try. And then we've got to show once we try and then hopefully once we succeed, My thing is, let's show the rest of the corporate social responsibility, cherry picking industry that likes to do the window dressing. Let's show them how to do it properly. So they can't just say, oh, working with trade unions is too difficult. They're too political or, oh, they don't represent women. Oh, or um, food association, collective bargaining. It's too hard. You can't do it. Let's show them that you can do it and let's show them how to do it.
0: Great. Well, I can't wait. I can't wait to uh, do our project because it's going to be great, but I can't wait to continue working with you, Gemma, which is an absolute pleasure and always fills me with energy. So thank you very much. It's been fantastic to talk to you.
1: Thank
2: you very much. It's been great. Thank thank you for asking me. I mean, it is a privilege. privilege (laughs) 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 Great.
0: Well, thank you everybody for listening and uh, we'll see you in our next episode.